Today on the show, I'm happy to have Tanya Evans. She's a professor of law at Penn State Dickinson Law. Her company is Advantage Evans Academy, and it's an adult education services company around blockchain and crypto. So what is the battle between FUD and FOMO? So both are acronyms. I think that most people know what FOMO is about the fear of missing out. But we also have this thing called FUD, which stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And it is, it involves misinformation, disinformation, a lot of things that keep facts or misstated facts and figures that keep people on the sideline and fearful of even learning about the various types of over 30,000 different cryptocurrencies and blockchain projects and ways even other than investing to really be a first mover in the space. So this battle between flood and FOMO often leads to folks getting wrecked in the space because either they're moving too fast without enough information or they're moving too fast or too slowly because of mis and disinformation. So what are the ways to get the right information? So it can be very challenging in the digital space and that has little to do with crypto and, and just more to do with the digital hygiene that I think that we all need in order to keep ourselves safer out there in these internet streets. And what does that mean? So it's the search engine pulls up and whether or not you can actually rely on information that way. YouTube University is the blessing and the curse. I got started six years ago in the blockchain and crypto ecosystem. At YouTube University, you have way more tools and resources that are vetted, verified, and legitimate today than back in 2017 or even back in 2009 when Bitcoin was first released. There, you have to go to trusted resources. Certainly, uh, folks like me in the space that don't have something in particular to sell, definitely not selling crypto, uh, not investing for other people, but just invested in information. So many great resources, legitimate news outlets like Coindesk.com. Coindesk.com, they have a TV show. They have a lot of late-breaking articles. They have resources. They have op-eds. So that is a great place as well. And finally, one other place that is free, it is coinmarketcap.com. It's an aggregator of data in the space. And I wouldn't search for any links just on a search engine. I go to, and not, not supported by them in any way. It's one of my favorite tools um, at Advantage Evans Academy. But you can go and see the thousands and thousands of different coin and token projects and decentralized finance and all of the exchanges and the latest news and a lot of really good free 99, kind of like blockchain and crypto 101, and even the upper level things as you continue your journey. So currently there's a lot of negative stigma around crypto. So what are your views on future for this technology? Yeah, this technology is here to stay. And by this technology, it really focuses on uh, blockchains as being digital uh, databases of information that aren't siloed, that aren't stored or maintained by one specific person, one specific company, one specific government. It really takes our ability in a Web 2.0 world where we were exchanging information and being both consumers and creators and disseminators of information. Now, the messages that we can send in a Web 3 world are going to be powered by digital assets, digital currency. So instead of just exchanging me messages on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, remember back in the day, the peer-to-peer -peer 
file sharing. I do that in quotations because I'm also an IP lawyer. So a lot of that file sharing was actually illegal, but that's a story for another day. Uh, but now we can use that same technology to send value. And that is a game-changing uh, equation because it really changes in the next, it's not going to be tomorrow or even next year. But as we start to see a fundamental shift in the way that even governments interact with value and taxing and, and using taxes to fund wars and things of that nature, that it really does change just the global focus from a specific country and, and its currency to a global currency that doesn't depend on borders. And for that reason, and, and you know, we have other reasons as well, we no longer have the luxury of not understanding the language and the empowering aspects of the technology, crypto assets, blockchains, again, really just databases. I have the luxury to not at least learn because the world will change in the next two to five years more than it has changed in probably 30. The rapid nature of technology and technological advances across industries, but in particular in finance, banking, supply chain, creativity, maintaining and leveraging digital assets, all of that is changing. And, and so it's really important to separate from fiction, understand the risks, the volatility, which happens in, in all nascent asset classes, not um, beholden just to crypto when the stock market first started out of button, Buttonwood and uh, the, under the Buttonwood tree in, in New York. Everybody said the same thing about the stock market that they now say about crypto. Everybody said the same thing about the dot-com uh, era as well. Everybody said, everybody said the same thing about the internet. And what we are doing now pales in comparison to what you know, the limited uh, ideas that we had for the internet with basically sending electronic mail, which nobody uh, opens anymore. Uh, now look at what we are able to do with this same technology. So this technology is here to stay. It's very empowering. It has its limitations. It has its pitfalls, but so did my car when I first started driving it. I don't know exactly how it works, but I know it gets me from A to B and we need to get more uh, savvy and intellectually curious around the future of money and wealth uh, and innovation. So with having a legal background, do you think the push is to bring in the proper regulatory compliance and laws around the technology? There's an interesting, I'm glad that you brought this up because it's a delicate balance between obviously protecting consumers and investors and businesses. As a lawyer, licensed in four states to practice, as a full tenured professor, my um, primary focus is making sure we have a safe uh, place to develop and nurture the innovation, but we also have to protect the innovation by doing that. So it's calibrate the right response that provides the framework and the guardrails for protection while still supporting the robust innovation in the space. That is exactly what happened when the internet was uh, being built out, moving from just among governments and uh, educational institutions at 1.0 to be more consumer-focused in 2.0 and now uh, 3.0 and beyond. So when I think of some of the gaps and the regulatory uncertainties, it's scaring, particularly here in the United States, it's pushing all of this robust innovation to other countries who are uh, more open. That doesn't mean that it is easier, but the clarity gives businesses and, and people the opportunity to understand the rules of the road. 
and govern themselves accordingly. Absence of that, or, or in some sense, it makes me think of the Securities and Exchange Commission in particular in the United States, using this idea of regulation by enforcement, by engaging in in court battles with individual companies rather than using its rulemaking authority to create the rules for the entire ecosystem. So everybody knows what the rules are to play. So that's going to take some time to shake out. I am encouraged by some of the legislation coming from Congress, really sets the stage for agencies to move forward. Uh, Congress is the one that creates the laws that empower those agencies, tell them what they can and cannot do. And maybe eventually we'll even see a regulator that's focused primarily on digital assets. We don't have that in the United States now. So it's left to existing regulators and agencies to just go at it alone unless and until there's more clarity. So once there's more clarity, you'll see more people feeling like it's safe to get in, safe to dip their toes in the water, both individually and as businesses. And you'll really start to see the acceleration of mass adoption. And so I want to hear your views on this. Part of the appeal of crypto and blockchain is the fact that it checks itself, right? We have these ledgers everywhere. It's being ran through all these computers. And so it doesn't have all those restrictions of the normal banking system. It's faster. There's not all these extra fees mm-hmm. mixed in. So the benefit of that is the freedom. But then the, on the other side of it is if you're hacked, the year there's no repercussions. So does crypto almost lose its appeal if it becomes like the banking system? And what are your views on the entire thought process with that? I'm a strong proponent of financial privacy and financial security. Uh, the best way for you to know the intimate details of a person is not for them to tell you, for you to read their diary, it's actually to see their transaction. When you go in and, or if you're buying a home or you have to justify things. They're asking you for months and months of bank Some, A lot of it has to do with the anti-money laundering rules. KYC, know your customer, and to avoid money laundering. And that's critically important. We do not want criminals acting in this space. But just because you demand privacy does not mean that you are a criminal. And I think we've been indoctrinated to believe that they are the same things. They can't be any further from the truth. My ability to maintain privacy, particularly in a democratic country, makes for a more robust democratic process. And that's little d. That's not uh, a particular uh, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, et cetera. But even crypto does come from a libertarian spirit of freedom, autonomy, agency, some things even from Kwanzaa principles of self-determination, cooperative economics things of that nature, having nothing to do with illegal activity. If I gave you $1,000 in actual physical currency, that would be between you and me. We could do that all the way up until about $10,000. And somebody's going to come and knock in to see where, because once you get into higher denominations, there's the argument is there's a greater likelihood for that, that some of the various activities. And I continue to push back on that. I think that we should have laws and rules that focus on criminality not on technology. And technology is agnostic. I, using an earlier example, I could use my car, God forbid, to drive around and hit people. Not, and that would be problematic because I use something that has uh, legitimate purposes for an illegitimate purpose. And we really need to crack down in that area 
to your point, this idea of regulations coming in to hamper the very importance of the technology, I argue that you should really lean into education around what it means to protect yourself and to protect your worth. Will I always, I'll carry some money, some credit cards, but not all, right? It's the difference of in my wallet, if I lose my wallet and it has $100 in it, I lost it. I lost it. We've gotten away from that because from a very early age, I think most people are actually taught to not trust themselves. And don't worry your pretty little head about your investment decisions, about your bank, about the fact that our banking system is not even fully backed one-to-one, right? It's fractionalized banking. If we all showed up, it is the dirty little secret that many people don't think much about, but I'd like to get more than $100,000 bank back if something happens uh, to my bank. But we're all not going to get our money back if we all ask at that day. Crypto, uh, cryptocurrencies, generally speaking, Bitcoin, ETH in particular, uh, they're uh, stable coins. They're backed on a one-to-one basis, at least the legitimate ones, not all uh, by any stretch of the imagination. They're not one size fits all. But I want us to get more empowered and more savvy about the agency and the autonomy that comes from knowing your assets, knowing how to safeguard your assets rather than always trusting others and waiting for someone else to tell us something that's a good idea to do with our money. And money is the conversation around crypto for me as an educator and a policy advisor isn't even just about crypto, but it's about changing the conversation of the future. What does freedom look like? My ability to have choices and to move about the world freely comes with my ability to have an asset that will travel no matter what the government is or things of that nature. So that's why I'm really so bullish on the space from a matter of empowerment, particularly as we're moving in, because it's really still just very early into this next wave of, of money and wealth. So you have a new book coming out. Yes. It's called Digital Money Demystified, and it aligns really nicely with the, some of the topics that we've talked about today that really helps people. I, I call it the book that you get before you start investing, or if you've had a bad experience, or if you had a good experience and want to take it to the next level. What are the primary myths that you should know may have a, a seed or kernel of truth, but what the origin of that myth is, why it's a myth? and some ways to edify your understanding about how to uh, avoid that myth and just get the facts, right? Stay away from FUD and get the facts. And so address things like crypto is only for criminals. Crypto is too volatile. Crypto is bad for the environment. Crypto is only for the crypto bros. It's like finance bros and tech bros got together and had a very unlikely baby. We call it crypto. So it's a microcosm of two uh, microcosms, but as a matter of being a person of color or women, there are a lot of other communities that are very excited about this. And even if they are currently uh, a smaller percentage of those who own crypto, actually women are the number one percentage in terms of populations or demographics that have an interest in uh, crypto. There's about 13.7% of Americans hold some which has grown since I first got in, but it's still very small. We're in the early innings here. And so even just demystifying the opportunities, is it too late? Uh, Is it too early? So 
exploring a lot of those things, including some anecdotes from my personal experience, because I think a personal experience is really the best teacher. I'm one of the most unlikely people to do the work that I do right now with my lawyer brain trained to see all problems and something about magic internet money and distributed laters. I didn't know, but I took it upon myself even early that I didn't know if I was going to invest, but I had to invest at least in education. I fell down the rabbit hole and here we are. So Digital Money Demystified is my opportunity to share my experience and do the heavy lifting so you don't have to. So if our, listener, our listeners wanted to place pre-orders, how could they do so? Oh, definitely uh, go to digitalmoneydemystified.com. That's digitalmoneydemystified.com. And I'm glad that you phrased it in terms of pre-orders as well. Pre-orders are so very important, uh, particularly at amazon.com uh, or support your local bookseller as well, because it signals to booksellers and the industry that this is an important book. It's an important voice. It's the right time. And it's a counterbalance to a lot of the books out there that are too technical. I'm a, not a technologist. I don't approach it from a technological point of view, although I explain the technology. But this is just a, more about the what, the who, and the why, and the where, and a bit of the how. But if we don't understand why, you'll never get to the how. And so I like to spend a lot of time with the, the why. And, and that will lead you to that. So thank you, Professor Tanya, for coming on the show and everybody for listening to another episode of Failing to Success. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star review. I'm your host, Chad Kalecki, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.